Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life-giving Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law could not do, because it was weakened through the flesh. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by the things of the Spirit. For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. The outlook of the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Welcome to CBC this morning. If we haven't met yet, or maybe you're joining us from Easter last Sunday, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. And like we did last Sunday, and we'll keep doing every Sunday before we dive into the scripture, we're going to take some time and get our hearts ready. And I'm going to say this each and every week, so maybe in like four years it actually sinks in and we start to believe it. But we live in a really, really critical culture. And sometimes if we're not careful, we we take that criticalness into the space where God speaks to us. And so what we have to do is know this morning that God has you here. Know this morning that God is active and know this morning that God has something to teach you or show you or or just simply remind you of that brings you joy as we're reminded of his good character. And so we're going to drop the criticalness at the door, come in here and ask the question, what is God teaching me this morning? And we're just going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you space to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to work. I'm asking you to pray for me that God uses our text this morning. So let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful that we can get together again. I'm so thankful that we have the privilege of gathering. After this last year, I hope I never take that for granted again. As we gather this morning and open up to Romans 8, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Use the word of God to inform the people of God of his goodness and of his truths as we talk about who we are in Jesus. So be with us this morning. If you're comfortable, I'd ask you to take just a few seconds and say a quiet prayer and ask the Holy Spirit this morning to speak to your spirit. I also ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation and his scriptures to just give us joy as we look at his character this morning.
Holy Spirit, be with us. Teach us. Move this morning as we open your text. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Romans 8 this morning, and we're starting a new series. It's called Spirit-Filled. It's after Easter, but I don't know about you, but Easter is a really interesting time in church world. Because like we talk about, it is Super Bowl Sunday for Christians. There's a lot of buildup that goes into Easter. It is a mountaintop high water moment. And last week was amazing. We saw God do some really great things. More people showed up than we thought, which is just encouraging to us when we open the doors. And it's really fun to get the people of God together. One of my favorite moments I tell staff is when I drive away on Easter morning, just because it's a sense of fulfillment. But here's what we have to acknowledge in life, not just life with Jesus. We have to acknowledge that so often with these really powerful moments, these mountaintop moments, these Easter resurrection Sunday life is available to us moments, and then we wake up Monday morning. We wake up Monday morning and that thought enters our head, nothing's really changed for me. I took the baggage of yesterday into today. <laughs> I took the hurts of yesterday into today. I took my pains and my struggles and my sins of yesterday into today, but it's supposed to be different because Jesus is risen, you know? The email I get more than any other as a pastor, more than any other, is I can't stop sinning. What does that mean about me? Is I keep struggling with the sin and I pray that it goes away and it doesn't go away. Does it mean that God's not real or God's not active? Does it mean that I'm not saved? Am I too far gone? The email I get more than any is people saying, I want the life that Jesus brings and it's so hard because I struggle with things. I've been there. I'm betting we all have. One writer puts it like this. He said, I don't do what is right. He said, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. You know who said that? Paul. Yeah. He wrote two-thirds of your New Testament. He is on the Mount Rushmore of followers of Jesus, and Paul wrote this right before the verses we're about to get into in chapter 8. And my point simply this morning is to say, what do we do in those moments when we don't feel good enough? What do we do in those moments when we feel like we just had a resurrection Sunday, but Monday feels eerily similar to the Saturday before we celebrated? What do we do in those moments? How would Paul answer the emails that I get about that? How would he answer me when I wake up after big mountaintop moments? Because we struggle finding the power of God in our everyday and the power of God that we celebrate on certain days. And that's okay. And today we talk about what it looks like to live life in the spirit, especially, especially those moments when we don't feel like we're living it like we should. And so Paul, if you have your Bibles, go to verse one of chapter eight. He asked this question at the end of chapter seven. He says, what do I do in these moments? And he kicks off chapter eight and he says these words, very comforting. In the middle of those moments when you doubt all the things in the power of God, remember this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a coffee mug Christian verse. I'm sure you've seen it. I have. It's a fantastic verse. It's when we go around saying, this is what makes Jesus different. I have no condemnation. But I've also seen people use this verse to be selfish. <laughs> I've seen people use this verse to do what they want to do, knowing it's not what God wants them to do. Have you seen this before? When they'll do whatever they want, and they'll say, but God says there's no condemnation. So real quick, let's talk about the difference between condemnation and judgment, Okay. Condemnation says that at the end, um, I, I will be condemned and no life will come. It's like a building. 
I did a wedding not too long ago, and, and there's a building next to this venue that was condemned. And I think the next weekend they were going to do the whole blow it up thing. And I thought, man, if you can get that for the wedding ceremony, that would be amazing, you know? And so it was really fantastic. But there was all these signs that it was condemned. It was roped off. It was actually going to be imploded a week later. The difference between condemnation and judgment is condemnation means that there is an end and there is no hope for life. It means there's an end date on this builder, on this person, and you will not find life after it's condemned. But judgment is different. Judgment means that there are things we want to fix, but life will still come out of it. It's like a house you're renovating, you know? Judgment says we're going to have some serious conversations about that wallpaper. But after we replace it, life can still happen again. The Bible's pretty clear about this. If you follow Jesus, there's no ultimate condemnation, but it doesn't mean that we don't have rights and wrongs or things we should and shouldn't do when we follow Jesus. We have to understand the difference so we don't misuse what Paul is saying here. Paul says in those moments when you ask, why do I still, even though I don't want to, remember first and foremost that there is no condemnation in Jesus. That is a comfort and a joy. He says there's no condemnation, and then he's going to talk about why. He says in the next verse, for the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. We've got to have a conversation about the word law in Romans. It's really deep theologically. So let's take a high picture view real quick. 99% of the time, when Paul uses the word law in Romans, he's referring to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law being the one that God gave his people on Sinai, the one that defined his people. And, and in the book of Romans, especially in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, the, the Israelite community, the Jewish community in the church at Rome thought they were better because God gave them the law. They used it as a privilege to say, we know more than you, God likes us more than you. Paul says that's not true. So most of the time in the book of Romans, we'll see it in verse 3, most of the time in the book of Romans, he means the Mosaic law, not this time. In this instance, when he says the law of the life-giving spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death, he doesn't mean the Mosaic law. He means influence or force that influences or impels our action. He means those things that cause us to do what we do. I think a really good example of this is like the force of gravity, right? It is a force that causes consequences in our world. I, I remember one time specifically, I was uh, with an old student of mine. I was in youth ministry for a while. And there are perks of that job for sure. One of them is that for the most part, if you're 25, 26, 27, and you're a youth pastor, and you're hanging out with 14, 15, and 16-year-olds, usually you're the smartest kid in the class, right? I hope. <laughs> I hope in that situation you feel confident in what you bring to the table. You've lived more life. So I met up with an old student. He went and got a degree in aeronautical engineering from Texas A&M. They just don't hand those out. You've got to do something for those. And we're talking about planes, and, you know, for years, he'd look up to me, put me on these pedestals because I'd convinced him I was the smartest kid in the room, and he starts talking about planes. And up to this point, I went to Bible college. I, I think in my Bible college, they teach that planes fly at hopes, prayers, dreams, and whatever Tinkerbell sprays on, on Peter Pan's people, you know? We don't really get into science that much at Bible college. We study Greek. And so he's talking about how planes fly. And he's talking about how really they're meant to fly and the difference between helicopters and planes and the law and principle of flight and the force of flight. And, and the whole time he's using these really big words and I just pretend like I know what he's talking about because I didn't want to break that image that he had of me as some really intelligent guy. It was for him. I love him. Anyway, so 
He's talking about the value of flight. And I remember thinking to myself, I've sat next to people on airplanes that were terrified of flying, you know, people that like are clinched the whole time. And I remember thinking, this needs to be explained to people. This is not hopes and dreams. This is science, right? And what I mean by that is every time you fly, you know what happens? The, the force of flight beats the force of gravity. It wins every time. Paul is saying there's two forces in our world. There's two ways to go about living. There's the force of the law of the influence of the life-giving spirit and the force of the law of the influence of sin and death. And you know what he says? Something we all know to be true. You know what wins over the other one? The life of the spirit every time. Because let me tell you something. In those moments, in those moments when you don't feel like you're living into or up to the calling of Jesus, in those moments when you ask the question, why do I keep doing things I don't want to do? I think the first thing we doubt is the superiority of the law of Christ over all the other things that try and weigh us down. And so Paul says, here's how I'd answer that email. (laughs) No, there's no condemnation and know which one is better. Know it. He says, for the law of the life-giving spirit of Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on to say, for God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. He achieved what the law could not do. We switch here and go back to the Mosaic law a little bit. The Mosaic law was given to the people of Israel to prove to them or to show them the standards of God. And so when he says God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh, the law was always supposed to be a litmus test of the righteousness of the people of God. It was always supposed to show them they needed a savior because they couldn't live up or live into it. Paul makes a really great case that the law isn't something that is bad. It is good because God gave it, but it also shows you what is bad. It's like, I, I can make a food analogy out of anything, so let's go. It's, it's like when you give two different people chicken and noodles. Some people can take that same thing that is good and make it taste like the best thing you've ever had. And some people make it taste like something you never want to put in your mouth again. The law, in some ways, is a litmus test to your goodness. It's a litmus test to your righteousness. And so when it says God achieved what the law could not do, he's saying that God did what we couldn't do when we were given the law. Live up to it. Live into it. Live up to the standard of righteousness. And it was weakened through the flesh. Flesh there means our natural bent towards ourselves and the sin that comes from that. So we took this good thing of God and we didn't live into his ways. But but God, there's a story of the Bible, right? But God. So in that moment, God did what we couldn't do. And he says, how? He says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And what we get are the things that we struggle with. We get these two natures. We get the nature of me and the nature of Jesus. We get the nature of the sinful flesh and the nature of Jesus. Here's one thing you need to know right off the bat in those moments where we're trying so hard to live up to and live into the ways of God. Those moments on Monday morning after we had a good resurrection Sunday when we're asking, why can't we be more like who we want to be? We have to remember that the law reminds us that it's not about how good we are about how great Jesus is. Because we doubt it. We forget it. And we live, we live in a meritocracy. We live in a culture. It's harder for us as Westerners because we live in a society that story is always this is how good you are. This is what you've earned. This is what you've done. The gospel is not that. Grace is not that. 
about how good and great Jesus is. And this is one thing that makes Christianity different from the others, is that Jesus came himself. God came himself. Over 40 times in the Old Testament, over 40 times, God sends a prophet, a priest, or a king, somebody to say, people, please start following God. Over 40 times. You know how many times it works out? None. But, but, but in Jesus, what we see is God in and of himself taking on flesh and saying, I'm going to come fix the brokenness problem that people caused. Christianity says that broken people can't fix the problem they, they brought in the first place. That's why we need Jesus. One writer says it like this. In Jesus, God takes the problem of sin into his own hands. In Jesus, God takes personal responsibility for humanity's salvation in Jesus. And so it says that the righteous followers of God know that Jesus is why they're righteous. He sent his son, and the text continues, so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us. In those moments when we feel like we're failing God, we need to remember that God loves us because of what he did, not who we are. We need to remember in those moments when Paul says, why can't I? When I say, why can't I? When you say, why can't I? We need to remember in those moments that God doesn't love me because I did in the first place or will do in 30 years down the road when he looks in his crystal ball. That Every time and always God loves because God is love. I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a missionary and he's about to leave the mission field and he's been doing it for about 15 years. And we had a good conversation this week. And being a missionary is very, very hard. He's in the Netherlands, and he's gone hard for a really long time. And he experienced burnout. And he just really had a hard time going forward after um, the last 15, 14 years or so. So he's talking about what that's like. And, and he said on the phone, he said, Charlie, there was a moment. Because he leads an organization that's pretty big in the Netherlands, and he's a high achiever, and he always has been, and he's a Westerner, so what he does defines who he is, and what he's achieved defines how much he's loved. And, and he said, Charlie, there's a moment when I was sitting in the woods by myself, and I heard God just simply tell me, I love you, and that's it. There's no because at the end of that. I love you because of who I am and what I did for you, not what you bring to the table. It's what makes the story of Jesus different. It's what makes the story of Christianity unique. That we serve a God who came, who fixed, and who did it because he loved us, not we earned it. And here's the deal. You might say, I know that story good. I'm glad. I need to be reminded of that all the time. Because I so easily and so quickly forget. And so Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled because of Jesus. And he ends, verse 4, by saying, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he gets into where he's going in this verse, which means he takes the question of, what do I do in those moments? The question of, why can't I be more like Jesus wants me to be? The question of, I'm not seemingly living into who I want to become. And he says, what you have to do in those moments is remember who Christ made you to be. You do not walk according to the flesh, but you walk according to the Spirit. What he does is remind us in those moments of our identity in Jesus. Because it matters. Because ultimately, that's what we question in those moments, is who 
are we in the first place? And he says in the text, he says that you have an identity issue that you wrestle with. And he answers himself by saying, in those spaces, I remind me of whose I am. Powerful. In those moments when we feel vulnerable to be reminded of one, why we're loved, and two, whose we are. Powerful. He says, this now is how you walk from now on. This is it. In what Jesus did for you, this is who you are not according to the flesh, but the spirit. And sometimes this is what we don't understand. We have this, this idea in our culture, right? That you have an angel on one side and a devil on the other. You've seen that before? The problem with that is the scriptures don't teach that. We have influences of sin, but the problem is that everywhere I read in scripture, it teaches that when Jesus did what he did and when we believed in who Jesus was based on who he is and not who we are, when that happened, do you know what happened? Jesus completely won. Christ wasn't halfway resurrected from the dead. It says that he gave us a new, we are a new creation in Jesus. He gave us a new spirit. He didn't say you have half the spirit of the sinful nature, half the spirit of the godlike nature. They're going to do some battle, and in the end, Jesus is going to win. He says when you follow Jesus, he's already won. He's already declared victory. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate that the tomb was empty. It's this beautiful picture that this is what grace does. Grace means that my activity doesn't define my identity because I'm already defined by the victory of Jesus. Oliver Kierkegaard says about it, he said, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say yes to be sure. But he does what is still more wonderful. He makes saints out of sinners. It's what this means for us. What Paul is saying in those moments when we're we're weighted down by the effects of our sinfulness, he's saying you have to know your identity and you have to know who already won the battle. That's what you're rooted in and based out of. And he said, here's the deal, that your sin can affect you, but it no longer has authority over you. You walk in the spirit. It's the idea of, of Juneteenth. You guys know what Juneteenth is? Juneteenth is a day celebrated on June 19th. And it's when word finally got to the southernmost part of the Confederacy that slaves were free. It's the moment when they finally realized that even though they have felt the effects of sin, they were no longer under the authority of sin. It happened two months after the Confederacy surrendered. surrendered. So it's this beautiful picture. It's this beautiful picture he's painting of, sure, there's going to be sin, and you're going to struggle with it, and I'm going to struggle with it, but know your identity as one in the Spirit, not in that anymore. What that does is it might not remove all the effects of sins, but it dang sure removes the authority of sin in your life because that's not who you are anymore. When we have those moments, when we have those moments, like Paul, when we say, why do I keep doing that? What we're doing is asking about who are we really. And in those moments, we need to be reminded that our identity is in what Jesus did for us. It's powerful. Read the next verse, verse 6. He says, it's powerful because for those of you that live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit have their outlook shaped by things according to the Spirit. What he's going to say is what we all know to be true. Whether we want to believe it or not, your identity is shaping your actions more than your actions define your identity. I know that to be true. I love what Richard Hayes says in his moral vision of the New Testament. He says, be who you now are. This is the call of Paul. He's saying when you rightly understand your identity, then you will rightly live into your identity. What he's saying is, to put it in some theological terms, that your sanctification should only be viewed through the lens of your justification. What he's saying is understand 
who you are and might that impact your influence over time. Those who know they're in the spirit will be shaped by the things of the spirit over time. Because I know that my identity is shaping who I'm becoming. It's this idea I think that he's getting to in our text that who you are shapes who you're becoming. That's what we need to remember in those moments. Who you are shapes who you're becoming. So really the question we're asking is do you know whose you are? There's a a writer, Malcolm Gladwell, and, and he quoted a study in his book, Blink. He talks about this NYU professor, psychologist, who did a study in New York City. You have to keep that in mind. That's very important here. I don't know if you've been in New York City. They are not as patient as we are down in Texas, okay? They just aren't. He did a study, and I'm going to read a little bit about it, but he basically did a study where there are these priming words. And so he put two groups of people in a room, and he said, you're going to do a word completion thing. took about 15 minutes. And one of the groups, the words they used were aggressive, rude, disturb, infringe. And the other group had words like respect, patiently, considerate. And after that, they were asked to go down to the end of the hallway, and there was going to be a man there, and they had to turn in their test to the man. The whole study, they didn't know this. The whole study was the man was going to be talking with somebody else. The whole study was based on how quickly they would interrupt this man that was doing something else. You know where this is going, right? The people that had the rude group interrupted this man after five minutes, which by New York standards is like, you know, two and a half years. They did a great job, you know? But the people that had the priming words that were overwhelmingly kind, 82% of the polite group, they, they never interrupted at all, and they just stopped it after 10 minutes. How we see ourselves, even in small ways of how we talk about things, how we see ourselves shapes who we're becoming, who you are shapes who you're becoming. In those moments when we wrestle with us, we need to remember this is what Jesus says. You are mine based on what I did for you, live into that power that now controls you. It's a beautiful reminder and a fragile moment of what Jesus did. It's a beautiful hope of what he will do. Because we can still feel the effect of sin, but we are no longer under the authority of sin. So he says, you are people now that walk in the spirit. And if you walk in the spirit, the spirit will shape who you're becoming. I know it to be true because... As much as I'm trying to fight it, I have one child, I have another child coming on the way, and we've talked about it, but that commercial when those people fight and fight and fight to be the suburban dreams that they are becoming, you know, I'm never going to have a kid. Here we go. I'm never going to move to the suburbs. Here we go. I'm never going to own a minivan. True story. Last week, my wife looks at me and says, I think I left it in the minivan. We don't have one, you know? I stopped, and I said, well, this marriage was fun. Um, (laughs) I can't fight what becoming a father with two kids is. I can't fight what it's doing to me. I can't fight that one day I'm going to give in to pleated pants again in my life. I don't want it to happen. <laughs> but I think who I am as a father is shaping who I'm becoming. And that's beautiful if who you are is beautiful. We are the righteousness of Christ. So in those moments when we question, we need to remember who we are because it's shaping who we are becoming. So Paul continues, and he says, For the outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the spirit is life and peace. Because the outlook of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to the law of God, nor is it able to do so. 
Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And he's, he's really going back to this dichotomy of there are two natures, people that know God and people that don't know God, people that live under the weight of the law, which is them trying to be God or be righteous, and people that know that Jesus is. It's funny. This chapter is a turning point in the book of Romans. This chapter starts a conversation in this book about what life is like in the spirit. In chapter 7, the verse before it, there are 30 uses of the word I. Paul talks about I a lot. It's a chapter on how he's struggling. In chapter 8, we have 17 times, the most in the entire New Testament, that references the Holy Spirit of God. It's about life in the spirit, away from life being controlled by what defined and what destined me to condemnation. Paul's saying, this is a new life, this is a new world, this is a new identity, and it's a new way to go forward. You have to understand that who you are shapes who you're becoming. In those moments when we question, Paul says, remember who you are. It's healthy for us to do. Because my struggle with sin isn't going away anytime soon, and I doubt yours is either. But in those moments, we have hope, not shame. In those moments, we have something to look forward to, not something to hide or run from. Because there's a difference in how we live this out. It's the difference between a Genesis 1 gospel and a Genesis 3 gospel. So often in our churches, we talk about the entire gospel through the lens of Genesis 3. That's where sin entered the world and the world broke. And so we tell the story of sin not breaking the world. And that's good and that's great, but that's not the whole gospel. That's the gospel of the flesh. But Paul ends... If you're in the flesh and it's all about you, you can't please God, but look at the beginning of verse 9. You, however, once again, he's going to remind us, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's this idea that when God created, he gave us identity. He gave us identity before we broke the world in the first place. That we tell the story of a God who gave us purpose and gave us life. That we tell a story of being God's children to bless the world around us, that we remember who we are and it shapes who we're becoming. In those moments, I think that's Paul's answer to himself. So as we kick off the next eight weeks in this chapter, chapter eight of Romans eight, we remember, we start by saying, we're not perfect, but what God promises is good. We're not perfect, but... (laughs) but we remember whose we are. We remember our identity because it's shaping who we're becoming individually and as a community. It's a hard thing to do. So, so you can say, what does this do for me? What do I do next? What do I do now? I, I would encourage you, like Paul, just the first thing I'd say to so many of us is to have a little grace with you and be patient because this is a process. So often we try to make the incremental nature of journey of discipleship or sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. We try and make it instant because we live in a microwave culture. And I think the story of scripture is much longer than that. We find more beauty and depth along the way to who God is and how he made us. But the first thing I'd simply say as we read and are reminded by our identity in Jesus is be patient with yourself and give a little grace because it's a process. Paul is experiencing it himself. (laughs) If Paul can remind himself of that, I think we can too. Uh, Two, I think what we can do is we have a silent retreat. Lynn mentioned it in a couple weeks. It's going to be on our identity in Christ. So if you need a reminder of that, it's a good thing to put on your calendar. I think we all need reminders of that. I think this is one of those verses that 
In Deuteronomy chapter six, there's this thing called the Shema, right? It's, it's given to the people of God about the law of God. And it basically just says, hey, wherever you go, on your door frame, before you get up, before you lay down, everywhere you go, be reminded that God is good and he gave the law to you because people are prone to forgetting these things in moments of either utter joy or utter despair. I think this is a Shema moment. I think this is one of those things that we write on our cell phones, we put in the mirror. I think this is one of those things this week you read every day in the morning and remind yourself of. I had a friend of mine who, growing up, he, um, he actually was a missionary as well, and he's not anymore. If you're my friend and a missionary and you want to keep being a missionary, maybe stop. Um, so when he was a missionary in, in Europe, uh, his password to his computer uh, was, he had some struggle with lust, like a lot of people do. And so there's a verse in Matthew where it says, if you lust after something, then take, you know, pluck your eyes out. Aggressive. But that was his password because every time he got on his computer, it reminded him of, right? And so the heart was good. This is one of those verses that needs to be a reminder. And make Romans 8, 1 through 4 your password this week, and then tell me what your account is. I'm kidding. <laughs> but find ways we can put this in front of you each and every day this week because we need to be reminded of our identity because our identity shapes our activity. Who we are shapes who we're becoming. That's the beauty of this text. It's the beauty of the promise of this text. Is that as a church, as we do it individually, it also needs to apply corporately. What, what if we were a church that told a story not so much about shame and sin, even though it's definitely a part of it, but about one that recaptures the identity of our God for the people of God that leads to joy everlasting? What if that's the story we told? It reshapes how we see gospel. It reshapes the beauty of Jesus that we call people to follow together. It reshapes and give more joy to why we gather in the first place. It reminds me of the resurrection and the moments on Monday morning when I need it the most. What if that's our story as a church? Because when Jesus came, he said, I bring life and I bring it to the fullest. Follow me and find it. So this morning, as we get into the beginning of Romans 8, as we remind ourselves what life in the Spirit is like over the next two months, we start by knowing that we are defined by the work of Jesus as he gives us the Spirit. And might that encourage us in those moments when we feel like Paul, and we feel like me on Monday morning sometimes, and we feel like the emails, when we feel like we're not good enough. We're reminded that Jesus was. And might that shape who we're becoming together. Let me pray for us.